In the church where I grew up, there was a knight of the realm, a sir, if you please. And he was knighted for his services to banking. So as you might expect, he was very affluent. Yet you would never have known it. My dad tells stories of taking his scout troop into his house, sweaty and dirty after weekends camping and crashing on his fine three-piece suite. He was also widely known in the church for his kindness to all and his great generosity to charity and church. I could tell you a similar story from my time in Bromley. Shortly after I arrived there, I remember being invited to a church member's house on the nicer side of town. And suddenly I found myself in this marble hallway with great paintings and mirrors. I had never been in a home like it and have never been in one since either. Yet I cannot describe to you the generosity of these people. I could not leave them without them insisting that they did something for me. In the end, they bought me a new pair of glasses, which I was struggling to afford at the time. And to be truthful, that was not a one-off experience in Bromley. Many of the people in that church had money, but were very generous with it. And as we heard at the church meeting on Wednesday, some of them are still sending it to us, despite Emily and I leaving there three years ago. To be honest, I like to see myself as a kind of ordinary guy, a man who would be on building sites if he wasn't in the church. And I admit, I can be sceptical about people with a lot of money. But experience does tell me that it is possible to carry great wealth with great grace. Affluence does not have to equate to selfishness. Yet having said that, I must also relate that I've witnessed firsthand the temptation that money can create as well. Again, in Bromley, there was a really talented young man on the edge of the church. And I had many conversations with him about faith, and he seemed to be drawing closer to the Lord. Yet one night after the service, he came to me in a quandary. And he said to me he could no longer see how he could hold his ambition in life together with church. What was that ambition? He wanted to be a hedge fund manager. That was his dream, to be big in the city. And we talked for a while, but sadly after the service, I never saw him in church again. Christianity and riches. It's a complex relationship of both blessing and temptation. This week I read an article on the 10 richest people in the history of the world. It was not a Christian article, it was a secular one. And it contained all the names that you might expect, the Tsars in Russia and the oil magnates like J.D. Rockefeller. But to my great surprise, who did they place right at the top of the list? None other than King Solomon. And what they had done was they researched the verses in the Bible that detailed Solomon's wealth and how much gold he had in weight. 
And one of the key verses was verse 14 from today's reading, where it says that Solomon received 666 talents, or 23 metric tons of gold every year. And using today's price for gold, they worked out that Solomon's own private fortune would have been somewhere around 1.6 trillion pounds. And that puts him streets ahead of anyone else. In fact, his wealth is estimated to have been more than double that of the second richest person in history. Be in no doubt, we are going to read today about Solomon's splendor, and it was nothing less than vast. We've been studying Solomon's life for eight weeks now, and I'm sure we've all learned more about him, well, more than we knew before we began. I expect that when we started, we probably knew a few scratchy details. Perhaps we knew of his wisdom. We knew of the story of him dealing with the mother whose baby had been stolen. Perhaps we knew that he built the temple in Jerusalem. But I'm guessing what most of us would have known about was his great wealth. And a large part of the reason for that is the popularity of the story that we read today. The visit of the Queen of Sheba to inspect Solomon's riches is truly famous. It's been immortalised in great films, great paintings, great pieces of music. And perhaps this tells us that we are still just as attracted to money as the Queen of Sheba was herself nearly 3,000 years ago. I read a commentary this week where Old Testament historian John Goldingay explained what would have made the Queen travel to see Solomon. Sheba was traditionally identified with the country that we now call Ethiopia. South of Egypt, on the banks of the Red Sea, just before it emerges into the Indian Ocean. It was a prime place for trade with both Asia and Africa alike. And boats and caravans of merchants would pass through heading north and south and east and west. But most personally of all, Sheba was at the end of a trade route that began at Tyre on the Mediterranean coast, travelled down through Israel, down through Egypt, into Sheba itself. And it was vital then for Sheba's ongoing prosperity that a good relationship was maintained with the monarchs of the other countries on that route. Hence the Queen's arrival in chapter 10 with a horde of extravagant gifts for King Solomon. We need to understand that all the conversations that take place in this chapter have pound signs floating around them. But much as I take John Goldingay's excellent scholarship on board, he knows far more about this than I ever will, I wonder if another reason lies behind the Queen's visit to Solomon. I just wonder if somewhere deep behind the scenes, God was at work. I don't want us today just to focus on this famous story of the Queen's visit to Solomon in abstract. I want us to see it as a piece in the jigsaw, a chapter in the greater book. I want us to read it in the wider context of Solomon's life. Do you remember how last week 
in chapter 9, we were beginning to get a little bit worried about Solomon. He had achieved an amazing thing. He had built the temple in Jerusalem. But with that project completed, it seemed as though Solomon felt he could just sign off now. He'd done his work for the Lord. Now it was time for him to live for himself. And our suspicions about Solomon's attitude seemed to be confirmed when God himself turned up to give Solomon a warning. In verses 3 to 9 of that chapter which we read last week, God basically said to Solomon, if you keep following me faithfully, you will get great blessing. But if you start to disobey me, all that you have worked for will come to nothing. The temple will be demolished and Israel become a laughingstock. And it was a very serious warning indeed, but sadly as the chapter continued, we had significant doubts as to whether Solomon was going to heed it. Now as we roll into chapter 10, we are seeing that same story continued. In fact, in many ways, chapter 10 works in the same way as chapter 9. God really loves Solomon. So he does his best to get a warning to Solomon through the visit of the Sheban queen. But then it's up to Solomon as to how he responds. And we'll be given more evidence that he doesn't respond very well. In fact, by the end of this chapter, the alarm bells will be sounding with full force. When we read of the Queen's visit like this in the context of the last chapter, chapter 9, I think we see two ways of how her visit could have really helped King Solomon. First of all, if Solomon had been alert, the Queen of Sheba could have given him some real perspective on the splendour that he had. In the opening verses of our reading, the queen arrives and discovers all that is great about Solomon and his reign. He is a man of great wisdom. He can answer her difficult questions and her challenging riddles. He's a man of great wealth. As Solomon takes around his city, she's staggered by its opulence. He's a man who's done great works. The queen is impressed with his achievements in stone and gold and his political achievements ruling the people. She really does discover that King Solomon was great King Solomon, just as the rumours she had heard had said. But notice this. As the Queen encounters the splendour of Solomon, she explicitly turns and gives glory to God. Verse 1, she relates Solomon's fame to his relationship with the Lord. And then verse 9, she manages to see through Solomon's wealth to the one who had given it to him. And incredibly, she breaks out in praise to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel, she says. Now those words are pretty incredible, aren't they? This queen has rocked up in Solomon's court and effectively gone, Wow, Solomon, you have so much. Your God is so good. I think it's fair to say that they are not the words that you would expect from a non-Israelite queen. She even praises God using his personal name. 
the Lord. Now this was, of course, how things were supposed to work. God had always wanted to bless his people so that then through them, people of other nations came to hear of him for themselves. But it is still extraordinary, the reverence we see in this Queen of Sheba as she speaks of the Lord. She has real perspective. Solomon has splendor purely because he's been blessed by God. And Solomon would have done very well to have learned that perspective from the queen. So the queen's visit really could have helped Solomon to see the Lord's hand in his life. But it could also have done something else. If Solomon had been listening, the queen also gave him a reminder of his true role in life. Listen to how verse 9 finishes because it's so, so important. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. As king, Solomon was supposed to be God's servant his agent, his representative in the land. Solomon's task was to bring freedom and justice and hope to the people. And while he was doing this, he was to be always pointing to the Lord. Solomon was to share the great blessing that he had received with all of those in the land who were in need. That was it. That was his task. That was his calling. That was his role. Nothing else. Solomon had been made king to maintain justice and righteousness. And here, right at the heart of the chapter, the Queen of Sheba explicitly reminds Solomon of it. It is by far the most important verse in this reading. And yet again, it's an incredible verse. This is a very surprising thing for a non-Israelite queen to know, to understand. And so much so, as I've sat with this chapter all week, I have found myself thinking again and again, was God up to something here? Did God have a hand in the queen's visit? Was he trying to jolt Solomon back on track? In 1 Kings 9, God had gone to all the effort of personally turning up to warn Solomon of the danger that he was in, the peril that lay ahead if he turned from the Lord. And Solomon had shown signs of ignoring that warning. And now here in 1 Kings 10, I think God tries a different tactic. Out of his great love for Solomon, he tries to speak to him through the voice of a contemporary, a rich monarch just like himself. Someone God knew Solomon would want the respect of. If that is what is really going on, and I personally think it is, 1 Kings 10 works in the exact same way as 1 Kings 9. God gives a warning to Solomon. You're in danger of going down the wrong path. And then the narrator gives us a lot of information. 
and we're left to decide for ourselves as to whether Solomon heeded the warning. Just before we go on to look at the details in the second half of the chapter, I want to remind us again of something important. In the law, God had set out some very clear instructions on how he expected his king to behave. They're found in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. We read them together last week and in the Bible study on Tuesday. And in those verses, God gave four explicit prohibitions that he expected his kings to obey. In order, they went like this. Kings of Israel must not acquire lots of horses. And specifically, they must not go to Egypt to get them. Number two, kings of Israel must not take many wives. Number three, they must not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. Number four, they must not consider themselves better than ordinary people. And instead of these four things, kings of Israel must revere God, read his word regularly and follow it carefully. That's what the law said. And Solomon would have known that law. He would have known that by following it, he would have become the king that God wanted. The king of justice and righteousness. But in our reading today, 1 Kings chapter 10 and the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 11, which you'll hear next week, we see Solomon ignore the lot. Let's very quickly run through Solomon's errors. In verses 4 and 5, Solomon takes the Queen of Sheba on this grand tour. But notice the order because it's significant. He begins in his marvellous palace. He then wows her with food. He then shows off his officials and his servants and his cupbearers. And then, finally, almost half forgetfully, Solomon shows her the temple. This haphazard inclusion of the temple is actually the only time it comes up in this chapter, apart from a passing reference in verse 12, which just speaks of more of the grand things that Solomon put inside it. And all of this leads to the question, what is really number one in Solomon's heart? Because if it was truly the Lord, surely he would have taken the Queen of Sheba to the temple first. Is this another sign of God being squeezed out of Solomon's life? We'll see. The second error we see here has to be the way that Solomon is amassing riches. Yes, it was due to his wisdom that God had given him that the likes of Queen of Sheba was turning up and giving him presents. But whose benefit was that wealth being used for? At the beginning of his reign in chapter 4, it explicitly stated that Solomon used his wealth to help people. You can read it, verses 20 to 25 of chapter 4. But just look at what's going on here. Who benefits from hammering gold into shields? You're not going to use a gold shield in battle. And where do they get put? They get put in the palace where only Solomon can see them. Who benefits from a gold and ivory throne with fancy armrests and a pride of golden lions around it? Who benefits from importing circus animals like baboons and apes rather than useful livestock like cows and sheep? 
There is only one person who benefits from this use of money in this chapter, and it's Solomon himself. The people, the ordinary people in the land, are getting very little indeed. Did you notice how the Queen of Sheba eulogized on how happy the people of Israel must have been in verse 8? But actually, in this regard, the Queen is wrong. Because in the very next chapter, chapter 11, we see that the people are becoming increasingly unhappy. In fact, by chapter 11, they are so unhappy, they're prepared to rebel. This queen's comment is deeply ironic. Is it another understated warning to Solomon? What's your priority, Solomon? Where are you spending your money? One thing was for sure, God had blessed Solomon, hugely blessed Solomon, but it was so he could be a blessing to others. And that plan of blessing was breaking down fast. And then the third error that we see Solomon make is equally explicit. In direct disobedience to God's law, Solomon acquires horses. And in verse 28 it says specifically, he gets them from Egypt. And the final verses of our reading, which, ironically for Remembrance Sunday, sound like a North Korean military parade. You know, like the ones we see on the television, where here is the sovereign brandishing proudly his military hardware, because that's what horses and chariots were for. Who was the parade for? The sovereign, of course. It's for his own glory, his own renown. Solomon's amassing of horses and chariots was self-aggrandizement of the highest order. And it begs the question, who's Solomon trusting? Is he trusting God to preserve his reign? Or is he trusting in his weapons and his own might? And you may think that I'm being harsh, but I don't think I am. Deuteronomy 17 explicitly gave four rules. No amassing of horses, no amassing of wives, no amassing of money. Do not think of yourself too highly. Solomon breaks all four. And the queen of Sheba had urged Solomon to reign in such a way that he brought righteousness and justice to the people. How does filling your palace with useless gold shields do that? It doesn't. Full stop. And we are no longer in any doubt. Solomon is on a very dangerous course. And all the alarm bells are beginning to ring. But all the warnings are being ignored. And this is only going to end up in one place. And we will see the disaster unfold next week. You know, as I've been living with Solomon in my head all week, I've been struck by just how well he started asking for wisdom and just how badly he finished. But most of all, I've been forced to wrestle with just how different in the end he was to Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the King of Kings, came as a servant. He gave up all of his riches. He had no roof over his head. 
He took time to wash people's feet. When he had the opportunity to unleash the military power of a legion of angels, he refused and instead took the way of the cross. It was through his death that Jesus brought justice and righteousness into the world by giving his life up for others. He rescued those who couldn't help themselves. The Jesus and the Solomon we find in 1 Kings 10 could not be more different. And we know which one we're to worship as our Lord and King. And I think that points us to the great moral of this part of Solomon's life. When God blesses us, it's always for a reason. As human beings, we are blessed by God to be a blessing to others. We are blessed to bring forward justice for the poor. We are blessed so we can fund the cause of righteousness. We are blessed so we can point to the Lord with everything we've got and not to ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we mustn't allow money or fame or power to tempt us off course as it did with Solomon. Those paths may appeal to us, but they will end up in disaster. So as we leave this place this morning, let's consider what we have been blessed with. Not just our money, but maybe the time that we have, the talents that we have, the wisdom that we have and experience down through the years. What has God given us to pass on? What has God blessed us with so we can be a blessing to our neighbour and our colleague and our family member? How have we been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others?